I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. And on this episode, number 195, I have the pleasure of chatting with Jetty Azuma. Jetty is the founder of the Rising Men Movement, a wilderness rites of passage guide, and a men's leadership mentor and coach. Since 2008, Jetty has been in the field of men's empowerment and mentored a wide range of men, from high-powered tech founders and corporate leaders to hard-working family men and vision-driven millennials. He has impacted the lives of thousands of men on his mission to initiate an entire generation into purpose-driven leadership. Despite his achievements, he considers his most important roles in life to be father and husband. And you can find Jetty on Instagram at Jetty Azuma. That's J-E-D-D-Y-A-Z-U-M-A. And you can find his organization, the Rising Man Movement, on Instagram at Rising Man Movement. And in this episode, Two of us talk about Jetty's work and specifically we delve into the nuances and complexities of rites of passage and transitioning from boyhood into manhood. We kind of explore the different avenues uh, for that rite of passage and anything from kind of modern interpretations of that to kind of historical and traditional uh, ways of thinking about it. So if you're interested in like that in general, that topic in general, or some ways that you can start to maybe auto-initiate and do some things uh, for yourself, then this is definitely going to be the episode for you. Got a lot of respect for Jetty's work and for him as a man. It was lovely to go on his podcast recently and then have him come on mine and do a bit of a swap. So uh, I had a great time chatting with him and uh, I love his curious and, and, and you know, curiosity and openness to this work. So um, yeah, I had a great time and I hope you enjoy listening. This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is so you can understand some of the things we're talking about. At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies so they fit together in a wonderful way. At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, she sometimes desires the more solid comfort of her husband Pierre's cock. Let's jump in. Let's jump in, man. Uh, the way I like to start, Jetty, is with three questions. The questions are, who are you? What do you do? And what are you really passionate about, man? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, my name is Jetty Azuma. What do I do? Uh, I spend most of my important moments as a father and a husband. And in my rest of my world, I'm, I'm leading men and initiating an entire generation. What was the last one? I already forgot. <laughs> <laughs> what are you passionate about, man? What am I passionate about? If I really reduce it down, what I'm most passionate about is setting up the next generation as best as I possibly can mm -hmm. and reintroducing tradition and culture that's going to serve my children, my grandchildren, and all the generations to come after that. Yeah, that's amazing, man. And, and what a beautiful mission. Uh, does that mean that you work with young people then in your work? Well, I work with my children. <laughs> um, kidding. Uh, I've worked with children ever since I was one, actually. Uh, I, I, I tell the story that I, I started to referee and coach soccer when I was younger, and that gradually evolved into volunteering as a mentor for young kids when I was in college. And I've had various different roles of working with mostly teens, like 10 to 18-year-olds at different stages over the past decade or so. Uh, most of my time is spent with young men. So I would say men in their twenties, thirties, and sometimes beyond. Um, although, uh, I do have a, I do have a tender spot in my heart for, for teenagers. The only reason I started working with young men is because I recognized that we needed to have, uh, men on the other side of the threshold before we initiate the young people. So they needed examples and role models. So that's, that's how that's evolved for me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, dude. I, I guess I'm curious, like what does the work look like, I suppose, if you're, you know, alluding to being on the other side of the threshold, uh, what does that mean for people that might've heard that and been like, what the fuck is Jenny talking about? Yeah. Well, so much of the work I do and, and my mission and my purpose is wrapped around rites of passage. Um, 
I, I usually describe it to people. Uh, a rite of passage is a, a transformation, a death and rebirth, metaphorical death and rebirth. And sometimes life just offers us, us rites of passages. Uh, becoming a father is a rite of passage. Getting married is a rite of passage. Sometimes there's a little bit more pomp and circumstance attached to rites of passages, uh, graduation ceremonies, things like that, um, significant birthdays. But when it comes to the types of rites of passage ceremonies that I'm participating in and helping to facilitate, we're really helping men, uh, helping boys cross that threshold into manhood and to go through an ordeal that helps them to identify their unique purpose in life. And so uh, the, the particular variety of rites of passage I was trained under and helped to facilitate is four-day solo wilderness fasts. We take men out into the remote wilderness. They fast from food for four days, spending four days, four nights alone, completely removed from any distractions other than just being with themselves and being with nature. And um, I, I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that, but that's that's what the work looks like, is spending lots of time out in remote places with wonderful men who are really just looking for that spark, looking for that glimpse of what is on the other side of the threshold for me when I can move out of boyhood where it's all about me and into manhood where it's all about my people. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for speaking into like your definition of a rite of passage, man. And something that's always intrigued me, and I suppose you'd be the person to, to answer this, mate, is why, and you mentioned this, why does a rite of passage need to include an ordeal? Hmm. There's a few different layers to this. Um, I can give you my best explanation from my experience and what I've been taught. Um, unlike other biological functions, especially the biological functions of females, we don't really know when we become men. We start to get hair on our face and other parts of our bodies. We start to have different biochemical things happening within ourselves. But there's not as clear of a delineation from boyhood to manhood as there is for women when they begin their first, when they have their first menses and they begin their first cycle, ability to procreate and to generate life. It's not as clear for us as men. And so the idea of going through an ordeal is to signify and symbolize moving from one chapter of life into the next. And in a lot of traditional cultures, in fact, every origin of culture that every human on this planet has, modern human, has evidence of solo time spent without food, without water, without sleep, out on the land. And so this is uh, ancient technology that all of our people have used for many, many generations. And I think a big part of it is also a demonstration of, uh, of competency to take on new responsibility. So oftentimes these rites of passage ceremonies would be, uh, they, would, they would guide young people through them to demonstrate that they were prepared for the responsibilities of adulthood, that they could be trusted with the story and the culture and the tradition of their people. Because, you know, we don't, we don't last forever. So in order to make sure that the way of the people was carried on, they had to prepare the young ones to step into those roles. And so I think... Regardless of what the circumstances were, I think it was always designed in a way to to say, hey, are you ready for this? Are you ready to be a man in our village? Are you ready to be a husband, to be a father, to be a leader, to be a chief in some respects? Um, I think on a personal side of things, that would be the outward facing community side. I think the other side of the ordeal is for me to prove to myself. Because when I go through these experiences, I, I get that evidence in my body that, oh, yeah, I'm stronger than I thought I was. I'm more capable than I thought I was, which mm -hmm. is also very important. Yeah, thanks for um, offering that as a as an explanation. I, you know, there's a few threads that I want to pull there. The first is like just a thought that's popped up as you shared about um, you know initial menses for you know uh, teenage girls essentially, and I I kind of think like, and I asked this on my social media like just last week, so it's like quite topical. I asked men if they remember their first ejaculation and uh, I got about 73% of guys say, yeah, they do remember it. And I got a few guys message me, you know, you know, privately and say, yeah, it was a really profound experience and they, and they recall it, you know, as being quite a uh, landmark kind of moment in their adolescence and in their development and their sexual maturity. And so I immediately then think like, is there a rite of passage around like, 
what's called spermarchy, right? Menarchy for the you know, debut of, of um, menstruation and spermarchy is like for the first emission of ejaculation. Uh, that's the kind of like Western medicine, medicine lingo for it. But like, is there a, because I don't really know anyone talking about like initial ejaculation or like your first experience of ejaculation and like that being a quote unquote rite of passage or, or demarcating some sort of transformative kind of moment in time for your sexual development or your your development of like your maturity or masculinity and i'm curious if you've got any thoughts around like initial ejaculation or if that's even something that's crossed your mind at all because i know it's a kind of abstract thing to think about sure well it's never crossed my mind before so i'm, I'm processing it in real time <laughs> I, I can't say i'm one of those 73 percent who can remember that seminal moment <laughs> you know pun intended <laughs> of of having my first ejaculation what i actually remember is that the first times that i masturbated there wasn't any ejaculate there was um i, I don't really know what it was definitely orgasm i remember feeling the experience of orgasm and then it seems like, I don't know, maybe after weeks of practicing that eventually there was some seminal fluid and then, you know, kind of full on ejaculate that took evolved over time, obviously. But I don't remember the very first time that happened. I don't remember the first time that I masturbated. I remember the, the era of my life, but that's about it. So I'm interested of what those stories might be like that. That is that is a fascinating prospect, because if there is anything that would compare to uh, menstruation for girls, I would say that first ejaculation is a, it's a very transitional experience. You go from having never ejaculated, having never expelled my genetic material out into the world to now having done that. It's, uh, and obviously it's like the, the masculine and feminine energy to it as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I never thought about it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, man. And, and I usually, like if I start speaking a little bit more esoterically about menstruation and ejaculation, I use the term sacred fluids, right. To talk mm -hmm. about the, um, you know, the expulsion or, or the, the shedding of those things. And, and we're going on a bit of a side quest here, but I wouldn't be doing justice to my sex educator role if I didn't uh, address what you just beautifully shared before. And thank you for sharing this because this is not something that I've seen spoken about a lot, but mm. you know, this is something that I want to mention is, uh, so boys will start producing sperm at a certain age. They're not like uh, girls who, who have all their eggs uh, already. Boys actually start producing sperm when they hit a certain age. It's usually when puberty happens, right? 12, 13 years old. Mm. And so what some of the research tells us and again this is retrospective research it's asking men about their experiences just like you've so beautifully shared here jetty is some guys will talk about when they first started masturbating they actually didn't ejaculate when they had an orgasm and that's because their body hasn't actually started producing sperm yet so if they're masturbating around the ages of like 12 13 then which is very common uh and they're having like you know stimulation to the point of orgasm these young boys are experiencing orgasm but it doesn't include an ejaculation because their body literally hasn't, you know, created the sperm and the ejaculatory fluid to actually have an emission uh, and go through the expulsion process. So like that, but that no one's, I mean, I say no one, like I haven't really heard a lot of guys talking about that, but you know, I've been in you know spaces and I know the research. And so I've, I've had that conversation with some guys and I think it's like a, um, like I said, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, do some sex educating around that and just like normalize that experience for you, man, because it is something that is a phenomenon, but no one really knows that it is. Can I, can I jump in for a second? Cause this conversation is sparking a whole memory. So now that you're sharing this, obviously no one, no one ever talked to me about sex at that age. Right. So I was, I was figuring it out from my friends who had heard things from older siblings like that. That's how we learned about this stuff. And I don't remember exactly who kind of put me on to the fact that if I stroke my cock, that it feels good and something might happen, right? That's kind of the, the extent of the information I had. So I remember like going deeply into experimentation with like, okay, what, what feels good? How do I do this? All the different ways in which to do it. And I, I actually remember now that we're talking about it, I remember when I started to produce that seminal fluid. Here's how. I had some sort of a like, uh, you know, when, when pat things come in, uh, toys come in a package, there's like a plastic covering on the paper, on the cardboard and it like, you pull it back and then the toy is revealed. I don't know what exactly the toy was, but I had something that had plastic packaging like that and it had dimples in it. Like, and if you turned it over, it kind of looked like an upside down egg crate, if you could imagine. And I remember, I remember that when I started to, to have semen that the first couple of times I, I kept it 
I actually like deposited it in those little like egg crates of that plastic sheet. And I, I hadn't thought about it until now because but but it, it was really interesting. I imagine going back into that time, I was like, oh, my God, look at what my body is doing and how wonderful it would have been if somebody could <laughs> guide me through that or talk me through it. Even, you know, here's heaping on a lot of wishful thinking. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if somebody could have spoken to me about how sacred that fluid was, like you called it, right? Like this is how you will create life someday. Your children will come from this fluid someday. I think at that point, I probably understood the science of it, but just someone to give me a little bit more of that, that real life spiritual context around it. Mm. I wonder yeah. how much that would have changed. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, man. And you know, I'm, I'm often reminded of stories that I hear and I hang out with a lot of sex educators. So this is like a very common conversation that we have. It's like, you know, teenagers going through puberty and no one telling them that this is probably going to be something that happens, you know, at some point. And, you know, teenage girls having a period for the first time and never being told what a period is and thinking that they're hurt or thinking that they're dying or thinking that something is wrong because they've started mm -hmm. to bleed. And, you know, kind of similarly, but, you know, different because the experience is different. You know, young boys who ejaculate for the first time going, what is wrong? Like, so, like you know, they this kind of like build up of, of sexual pleasure, but also like the feeling of like, oh God, like what if, what if there's this, this threshold? What if I get to the other side of that? What's going to happen? And, mm -hmm. and I remember that as part of my kind of like adolescent experimentation, like never feeling a little bit scared of like this build up of sexual energy and pleasure in my body and going, God, what happens if I go too far? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, part of that as well, like I, I'm, I've shared this on the podcast before and we're, we're definitely going on a bit of a side quest, but I'll tie it back in <laughs> is um, I remember uh, the first time that I ever pulled back my foreskin for the first time and like fully retracted it because I'm uncircumcised. And that was like, that's like seared into my memory as like a, uh, a moment of my like sexual adolescence, I suppose. And, and um, yeah, as a, like a mini personal rite of passage for myself right like it's, yeah. it's something that that was really meaningful for me at the time and, and like i said i still remember exactly where i was and, and what i was doing to this day um so it obviously had meaning to me but i don't remember my first ejaculation interestingly enough right so i'm not in that 73 percent of guys uh, was it again, was it painful media survey no it wasn't painful but i was worried about it right like i remember the fear of like it possibly being painful but it also felt good right and so there was this like mixture of pleasure and fear and um Gotcha. I think no one had taught me about it, like um, about what a foreskin was. I'd got no sex education at the time. No one said that it can be retract. You know, it was just something that I did as part of my um, you know, experimentation and curiosity of my body. Uh, and that's like a, a whole nother conversation. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole necessarily. Um, but what I want to do is I like, bring this back to like, okay, what are some like, quote unquote, biological rites of passage that, that men can... Uh, you know, can go through. And so that, that brings me all the way back to, you know, uh, initial ejaculation and uh, mm -hmm. like some guidance around even sexual initiation, right? Mm -hmm. Like a rite of passage may be the first time that you have sex, right? Like that's a very, you know, it's often framed as a bit of a rite of passage, but not in a healthy or intentional or conscious way for a lot of people. But, you know, it's really lauded and celebrated in, you know, the media and in kind of society. And, and especially like if I recall my mates you know that there was a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation to like quote-unquote lose your virginity um which again if i put my sex educator hat on really dislike the language of losing your virginity and having something taken away from you um mm. so, sometimes the word deflowering comes to mind again fucking horrible way of framing something that should be celebrated and, and should be considered a rite of passage so Here's a reframe for those listening is your debut, your sexual debut. You're stepping onto a stage, right? And really, you know, uh, stepping into this new part of Super yourself. Super positive, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it, that's what I really like as a reframe. Uh, and you can have multiple debuts, right? There's multiple things that you can, the first time you have oral sex, the first time you have penetrative, you know, intercourse, the first time maybe you explore something anally or, or do something else entirely. There's like all these beautiful debuts that you can have. So something's being added, not taken away from, from you. So that's my little... You know, reframe there as, as a positive rite of passage, right? So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, sexual rites of passage or sexual initiations and if you had any thoughts about, like, what that might look like and if there's, uh, I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but if there's, like, elements from the work that you do with regards to the rites of passage that you take these young men through, like, going out into, into like, the wilderness, into isolation, you know, working through an ordeal, like, is there anything that you reckon is, like, an appropriate thing to take 
you know, from those and, and workshop here on this podcast um, with regards to like a sexual rite of passage. I'm curious if anything's coming up for you. Absolutely. Uh, first, let me take a half step back to just break down rites of passage a little bit more. So just the word passage alone means we're moving from one place to another. And we often talk about the threshold as the 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 step over which I take to go from one period of life, one way of being, one identity into another. And when we add the word rites to that, the rites of passage, it simply means the the procedure by which we commemorate this moment. And so if we're thinking of rites of passages and we're, we're speaking in the sexual realm, um, sexual debut, right? Um, how much ceremony and guidance and importance was placed on that moment for any of us, right? And, and what would have been most appropriate? Because a lot of times sex is one of those uh, very familiar rites of passages that gets spoken about. In fact, even the terminology rites of passage, you ask people, well, what's, what are some of the rites of passage that humans go through? Losing their virginity, right? Like the, the terminology you don't like, that's, that's one of them, having sex for the first time, right? Um, and it is, it's such a, it's such an important moment where I go from being somebody who is inexperienced in the way I use my body to connect with another person and to possibly procreate and, and reproduce and, and create new life. Um, and to have that be something that has so little guidance and so little direction attached to it. Um, I know from, I know that was my experience. I know that was many people's experiences. And in the in the realm of uh, more traditional boy to manhood rites of passage, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, one of the things we say is it's very instinctual for a boy to send himself out into a very challenging situation, knowing that he must go through an ordeal. It's that part is very biological in all boys and men, and a lot of those boys they do what we call auto initiating. So if there's not a community, if there's not uncles or elders to inform and guide and direct that young person, then they will go and seek those opportunities themselves. For example, going and backpacking across the world or taking a huge risk and going out into the wilderness by themselves or a backpacking, something of that type of nature where there's risk involved, there's unknown, uncertainty, and there's uh, they create that ordeal for themselves. And so using all of that framework and speaking about sexual initiation, right? Being initiated as a person who has now had sexual intercourse and is capable of that, how how much or how little direction and guidance and support is there in those moments? Um, I think, I mean, you probably have a lot more to say about that than I do. I know that there is, I still have never had a sex, a sex conversation with my parents, right? For all I know, I was immaculately conceived and so were my brothers, right? They never talked to us about that. Um, but I, you know, so then I think about, well, what can, what's, what can I do for my children? And we started talking about sex and, and sexual organs with our children the moment that their curiosity was piqued. And, and that's what we were mentored to do through people that we learned from. And um, yeah, I hope to give my children a whole lot more than I got because it was, you know, it's a very tricky time. Mm, yeah, I often think about like role models for. I just, you know, I've got a son. And so like, how can I be a role model for my son in terms of like sexuality and pleasure? How can I be a sexual role model for him? Right. Mm -hmm. Cause he's going to, I'm going to role model what it's like to be a dad. I'm going to role model what it's like to be a man. I'm going to role model what it's like to be a husband. I'm going to role model what it's like to be a business owner. I'm going to be a role model and so many other things for him just mm -hmm. by virtue of the fact that he's going to spend a good portion of his childhood with me. So like, mm -hmm. there's also going to be an element of like, well, does he, He's paying attention to how I show affection to my wife and to, you know, us prioritizing setting aside time for ourselves. You know, of course, he's not going to be there you know, witnessing the act of sex itself. But like, how do I model to him like the way that I talk about sex and the way that I feel comfortable about it? Like, it's my job. I've got all these sex books on my shelf. I've got sex toys on the bloody shelves as well. He's going to see stuff like that as he grows up. So how can I be a quote unquote sexual role model for him and give him like the the guidance in an appropriate way and and i don't know the answer to that like i'm i'm just a fucking dude on the internet you know so i've got no clue what that actually looks like hence why i speak to a lot of sex educators and they give me much more advice than i'm giving to you right now um but i wanted well, to um can i say yeah, one sorry, thing about man, that sorry. yeah please please well 
because I, I also had no idea. Like I, I just kind of laid out what I was, what I was modeled for my parents and my elders when I was growing up. Um, one of the things that my wife and I were mentored to do through a coach that we sought out was to, to meet their curiosity where it's at. And that was a very, you know, especially with our first child, because we didn't know exactly where that was going to lead us. And he was starting to, you know, explore his genitals and see what's going on down there and ask questions about sex. And we didn't want to hide anything from him, but we also were, how do you know what is appropriate? And she said, well, just follow his curiosity. Just, just answer his questions. And so he would ask us, he'd like say, what's, you know, what, how, how are babies made, for example, right? And to be very honest, well, babies are made when a man takes his penis and puts it in a woman's vagina. And then, and, and at some point he's like, oh, okay. And then he doesn't, then he doesn't, he's done. He's fine. And then a year goes by and then the conversation comes up again. There's a little bit more curiosity and, and, and that's been our approach to it. And it seems to have worked really well. Um, the other important thing, I think this kind of sp- circles back into the sex education and how we can mentor this as a rite of passage. Consent, consensual sex is such an important topic. I mean, really important to me. I have both a son and a daughter. So on on my son's side, really making sure that all of his encounters with his sexual partners are consensual on, on in both directions, right? Um, and especially pertinent for my daughter, you know, knowing that she's going out into the world as a, as a young woman and that... <laughs> I, I'm a guy too, right? So I know what the world is going to direct back at her. So really educating them about consent and starting with when someone says no and they don't want you to touch their body, then that's a boundary. And making it really clear, it doesn't even have to be sexual at first. And so I think these building blocks, it's 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 a very, it's a very long-term education that we're talking about. And it's just little dabs to the painting as we go that helps them to build their picture we don't have to give them just this heavy dose all at once when we're 12 years old in health and science class like here's how everything works now good luck right we could (laughs) god speed my my young young folks uh what you're describing man is is you know best practice from what i understand from my sex educator uh you know colleagues um which is to yeah answer the question that they're asking right Mm -hmm. and and leave it at that you know an example that's often used in these scenarios is a child finds a condom and what's this like oh that's a condom mm-hmm. okay leave it at that right they go oh what's a condom used for oh so a condom is what is put over the penis during sex oh okay why oh well because it stops you know ejaculation from going or it's you know helps prevent pregnancy or helps prevent stis oh okay what's that <laughs> and so like like only ask as much as they are like you don't need to go because i think i feel like a lot of parents will go like if a child finds a condom like firstly a lot of parents don't touch that don't touch that you know it's not for you right not until you're older right that's like the the first thing and everyone knows that's just going to make a kid like either feel some shame that they've done something wrong or go oh what is this right Right. i'm gonna find out more about that um right and and that's 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 not what we want to do but also as you so beautifully shared Kids will go like, oh, okay. And then they'll just leave it, right? And then that, that, a year will go past and they'll be like, hey, that, remember that thing? You know, that condom thing that we found? Like, what's, I've seen a few more of those. Like, can you tell me a bit more? Like, they'll, they'll ask, they'll bring things to you as long as you're like creating that space. So, um, yeah, you, you've answered so beautifully, man. And, and um, yeah, you don't need to, to load up like, hey, this is a condom. They come in all these different shapes and sizes and flavors and you can get ribbed ones. And it's like, Kids don't need to know that when they're just asking, hey, I just found this. What is it? You can be like, oh, it's just, yeah, yeah. Answer what's what's uh, appropriate at the time. So, yeah. Um, well, anyway, we're getting we're getting on a little bit of a sidetrack here, man. I want to dial things back into um, to like rites of passage. And, and specifically, I want to talk to you about, um, you know, the work you're, you're um, explicitly doing with regards to like going out and... and um, you know, spending some time alone in, in isolation. And I, I appreciate you bringing up like the going backpacking or like seeking out some sort of, uh, you know, tr- trial or ordeal, you know, in a, you know, that, in that auto initiation kind of way, because that definitely resonates for me. Like I did that, you know, and, and whether I was aware of it or not, like I graduated and I was like, see ya. And I fucked off and I took a backpack and I went traveling solo and like, recognize that there's a lot of privilege that I was able to do that because I had the cash to do it. Uh, I'm a six foot three 
like white man. So I was able to like feel pretty safe in a lot of places. Uh, and you know, I recognize a lot of people can't do that. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm able-bodied, right? So I was just able to just chuck a backpack on and just go go walking and go trekking and, and feel pretty good about myself. So, um, so there's a lot of things that like went into me being actually able to do that in the first place. And one of the things I did, and, and here's where I want to tie this back into like your work specifically, is I went out into the uh, Sonara Desert in Arizona and I journeyed with peyote for three days. And I was like really, again, really lucky and really privileged to be able to like link up with some people that, that had a peyote farm out there. And obviously in, in um, you know, the United States, peyotes be able to grow for, you know, ceremonial purposes that you know the, the the legalization around it is that it can be grown for for ceremonial purposes so i was able to go out there and um participate in like a you know, i don't particularly like the term only because i feel like it's been quite misappropriated is like i went on a quote-unquote vision quest and um that's the way it was framed to me and so i went out and spent three days with only water and this jar of peyote liquid let's say and um and yeah they instructed me to like drink it over the course of three days and you know, they, they give me stuff to make a fire and i had a sleeping bag and they were like we'll come get you yeah and they just drove me out into a little spot and were like just you know good luck essentially and mm-hmm. um and it was amazing it's probably one of the most <clears throat> profound experiences that i've had um and like I, I had a journal and I, I still have my journal on my, my shelf and like the things that I wrote down there, like are still really um, pertinent to my life at the moment in the way that I think um, in terms of my, my spiritual practice. So yeah, it was like a really transformative um, experience. But here's where I want to like ask you a, a question. Here's where I want to dial it in. Is like, unless I tell people that, people don't know that I've done it, right? Correct. So mm-hmm. the right of passage itself is like yes very meaningful to me but how do people know that i've gone from and and you know we open this up more broadly like how do how do you know how does the community or the people that these men are coming back to how do they know that there's been a rite of passage that these men are now not actually boys anymore that they're men like what what what's the integration piece i suppose i'm asking i'm just curious i don't know if i formulated a question but just wanted to get your thoughts on that man no it's it's really good Uh, it's going to be a multi-layered answer so are you ready for it yeah well i've been rambling heaps man so please go for (laughs) it okay okay uh first i want to just bring in some pieces for context so uh many folks i'm sure are probably familiar with maslow's hierarchy of needs if you're not just go google it and look it up um i would say if i'm very broadly describing Maslow's work. He was looking for the the different needs that are required by a human to survive and to thrive in the world. And there's baseline needs like food, water, shelter, and it moves up through the hierarchy all the way to the tip of the pyramid, which is described as self-actualization. And for me, I translate self-actualization into a, it really, it's a person who knows what their unique purpose and function is as a, as a contributing member of a community. And so Maslow's original hierarchy ended at self-actualization. I think a more traditional or indigenous approach to initiation from childhood into adulthood, that would be the beginning. So the way I interpret Maslow's pyramid is that these are all the things we're supposed to give our children to help them identify their unique purpose in this world. But it doesn't end there because there's a, there's a second version of Maslow's hierarchy that's appropriate where it begins with self-actualization. And then when you have a whole generation of self-actualized people, there's community actualization. Now we have a collective awareness of who we are as a people because we all know each unique function that we represent. And when you have a community actualizing itself and that can be passed on for generations, cultural perpetuity is the tip of that pyramid. And what does that mean? Legacy. Now we have a bona fide culture and tradition and something that can be passed on from generation to generation, tools and technology that can help people remember who they are and identify their clear function and contribution to a community. So this is all relevant when we think about traditional format of village and communal living. We all depended on each other, right? It's like the 
the vision that you probably see when you close your eyes and you imagine a traditional village of your ancestors around a fire, kids running around, playing, men hunting, women gathering, some very rudimentary types of structures. It's, it's, like, a, it's like one singular organism that has all of its parts that function together. So coming back to what you were saying, your experience as, I wouldn't say you quite auto-initiated. I mean, obviously you had a solo experience, but there was somebody, it sounds like, who was guiding you. What, the way I was taught about rites of passage, there's three stages. The first is severance. So in severance, we're severing and shedding the skin, the identity that we have right now. This is the death part. This is where my identity up till this moment ends. And then I cross into the threshold, the second stage. And for us, that's four days where you spend it alone. So you're kind of suspended in this liminal space where you're gathering information and intelligence on who am I becoming. After those four days, I come back. And the moment I return, not only am I coming back as a new person and claiming a new identity, I'm being witnessed by other initiated peoples who are there to see me and receive my story. So that people who can hear my story, who... To them, I can make declarations and commitments about the gift that I'm preparing to bring back for my people. It then builds in this level of accountability so that I can incorporate my gift, third stage, for the rest of my life. And the community function is so important because it's, it's the whole thing. Like if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound, right? If a boy goes off and initiates himself in the woods, does it really happen? Who can hold that boy accountable to his gifts into manhood if no one saw it, if no one knows what he's been through, if no one heard his story. So this is a really important piece, man. I think there's a lot of value to the types of rites of passage where people do go off by themselves. I had one of those myself where I traveled across the U.S. Um, I was 22 years old and I drove clear across the country out to the reservation and tons of experiences that just blew me open. And really, I was a different person when I returned. But to have a ceremonial rite of passage that was community-led and community-supported and community-guided, that's, that's what's created the man that you see before you. And that's why we do the work that we do and offer that, because we know that we're not supposed to do any of anything in our lives by ourselves, right? Mm. So there's an element of accountability, which is integral to the, let's say, the post initiation or the post um rite of passage um, which i think is really great man and i'm curious what does that look like for the guys that you do work with is it like a is it a call is it like a check-in process like what how does that accountability work it's a great question um within the within the experience that we provide we do immediate incorporation support after we take guys out to fast because we know that all of these guys are coming from families jobs places that they live where they're probably the only person who's ever had an experience like this. So there's not many people to go back to and say, oh, I just did a vision fast and I'm coming back with this information. So we provide that immediate incorporation support to help them land back in the world. It's like being popped out of a machine and having the gears modified and then trying to plug it back in. It can be a rocky experience. But what, what I believe we've done really well in Rising Man is that we have continued to provide incorporation opportunities for men even after the initial container ends. Um, even just as we're recording this, it's about to be the winter solstice. So every solstice and equinox, we have a community call where every man who's ever come through and fasted with us is welcome to come. And it's really an opportunity to tap back into our own medicine because it's so easy to get distracted in the world and forget about that. Uh, and, and to also support each other in through the wilderness of incorporation because it's rough out there, you know, even in an ideal setting. It's challenging to take the medicine of one's gift and demonstrate it in the world. Um, and we've been doing this for four years within the Rising Man community, going on five years in the Rising Man community. So now we're actually starting to have in-person incorporation gatherings because we have higher concentrations of men in different places. We've got over 100 men now who have gone on this experience with us. So we have men who are incorporated, initiated men that are starting businesses together, that are traveling the world together, that um, I just got a photo of three guys who went to support one of their fasting brothers at his wedding. They showed up as guests to his wedding. So we're little by little, we're reclaiming this right of initiation and starting to in and incorporate it into our actual lives. Not just this cool experience I had out in the desert one time that nobody knows about or has any context for, but I'm, we're actually bringing it into real life. 
And I think that's the best gift that we can give the next generation is to have a model for what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for speaking into that, man. I'm like, just something that comes to my mind, I suppose, is like having a marker uh, to demonstrate like that initiation. And, and you know, I'm going to like just fully disclose that I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about here. But I, but the thing that comes to mind is um, like, and I, I apologize for not knowing any of the terminology, the correct terminology, but the, the tattoos that Maori fellas get when they, mm-hmm. and, and I don't, you know, it's not even just men from what I understand, but like the, and, and like specifically from, again, from my very limited understanding is like the, the specific tattoos that you are only allowed to get f- for certain phases of your life or certain things that you've done. And, and you know, I know that's not just Maori. I know there's, there's um, particular uh, Polynesian cultures as well where, where similar tattoo processes kind of um, take place and, and there's protocols around that. Um, but like, that's what comes to my mind when I kind of think of, a marker of initiation like you, that, that's like a very visual marker of like oh this dude's like or this woman or this person's like you know got a specific thing within the culture so people that understand the culture will understand like what that what the significance is of that marker or of that that tattoo and i suppose my curiosity then is like is there anything else like that that isn't like you know appropriating like polynesian culture is there's like something else that we could do or something that you know you guys do at rising man or is there like yeah just a marker or a symbol of of initiation that you have thought about yeah well immediately what comes to mind is uh it's, it's kind of the negative expression or the unfavorable expression of status that how, how far we've migrated away from traditional markings right because whether we're talking about piercings body modifications tattoos um haircuts uh, there's there's so many different ways that traditional peoples modified their body image to denote a certain status among the people that was useful right and as i was tracking this i started to think about the military right so you think of military there's there's decorated generals and lieutenants and sergeants and there's different pins and badges that that denote a certain certain achievements and certain levels of status and even though I know nothing about the different rankings and what any of those mean, if you see somebody with a jacket on and they're full of badges and medals and stars you know, and stuff, it means something, right? Yeah. 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 It's not his first day on the job, right? <laughs> you could safely say that. Um, but then I started to think about, well, what are the other indicators of status that we have? How do you, how does a man who's achieved and earned something in his life demonstrate his status? Well, now it's more material things, right? It's like, how many cars do you have and how many nice cars do you have? I think, unfortunately, some people even treat their partners, right? Like for men, especially like, who do you have hanging on your arm as an indication of status? Um, I think of like hip hop artists and celebrities making it rain, right? Like how many dollar bills you got flying down in the club? There's there's certain indications of status that we as a society have given some level of value to and said, wow, that's an important person. That's somebody that deserves respect. That's somebody that should be admired where it's, it seems like such a far cry from what our ancestors were practicing. And that's talk about your rabbit holes. That's definitely a big rabbit hole we could dive down. I don't know if that's where you want to go, but I I think that presently, I think you, you asked me, what can we do? Um, So much of my work now that I've gone a little bit more deeply into it for the audience is in, in reclaiming and recreating a culture that we can connect to as modern humans who are accustomed to having conversations across great distances on pieces of machinery and technology how can we find a context and a reference for us to mark these significant moments in our lives tattoos are still a huge thing right i think a lot of people consciously sometimes but unconsciously most times use tattoos to indicate moments or significant things there's memorial tattoos sometimes we get I got a tattoo on my 17th birthday because it was the earliest I could get it done with my mom's permission. And that was a rite of passage for me. And I, I, I still, I love that tattoo to this day. Cause to me, that was my, one of my indicators of I'm, I'm increasing in status. I'm, I'm up leveling, right? I'm ready to take on a little more responsibility, but uh, I think, so there, I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of room. There's a lot of opportunity for us to do that. Separating it from an egoic pursuit, or something that is showy or flashy or attention seeking, but is actually grounded in something more sacred 
is where I think we would benefit as a people. Mm. Yeah, thanks for you know, not going too deep into the rabbit hole, but offering like a, a beautiful <laughs> uh, reflection. And interesting that you share about your um, first tattoo. I did the exact same thing. I got a tattoo when I was 17. Uh, my dad took me because it was the first you know, age that I was allowed to with parental you know, uh, supervision. And uh, my girlfriend and my best mate at the time came with me because uh, it was on my ribs and it was fucking sore. Um, but it was like a little you know, initiation uh, and, and you know, marking uh, transition into to adulthood. Um, and now I've used like, so my, my left arm, uh, sleeve tattoo has the, um, images of all the plant medicine that I've journeyed with as well. So each time I journey with a new plant medicine, I add it to, to my sleeve. And, um, and so that's like created some meaning for me as well. And I'm, I'm, on my right arm, I've got a tattoo when I, um, ordained as a Buddhist monk in Northern Thailand as well. I got a Sakya tattoo with, um, uh, big bamboo pole and, and that was to, that was to commemorate but also um like acknowledge my time uh as an ordained monk in in the the kind of forest monastery up there so yeah so you're right tattoos as well like you know uh, in a more kind of like mainstream sense can be used and um, so that's that's cool i appreciate you bringing that up um and i guess like my other thing that i wanted to ask you about something you mentioned just before and i you know maybe some people caught it maybe some people didn't but you were talking about like a liminal space right so if i wanted to like ask you to expand on that because some people might go what is that uh, and now <laughs> i did when i first heard about liminality and liminal spaces and it didn't really make sense to me so i was curious if you would like to expand on that yeah my teachers especially that threshold time when a man goes out for his four days of fasting uh some of them describe it as the in-between worlds it's the place where i'm not quite here but i'm not quite there I'm somewhere in between. We I spoke about the three stages of a rite of passage before, severance, threshold, incorporation. And I usually use the metaphor of chapters in a book. So severance would be synonymous with the last paragraph of a chapter that I've been writing all the way up until this moment. And I'm putting the finishing touches on and I'm, I'm reconciling the chapter, preparing for a brand new one. Threshold would be in between those pages. I'm turning the page. I'm no longer on the previous chapter but I'm not yet in the new chapter. I'm in this in-between space. So I'm a little bit suspended in time. Um, so my understanding of liminal space is that it's, it's timeless. It's like being caught in between worlds, you know, like kind of stuck in a portal, so to speak. And we even use that as some context we bring in so that men can really drop into what it means to be in that incubator of the threshold time. Um, I'm, I know there's a lot more scientific explanation behind it, but just as far as like the spiritual context and story we use is pretending like you're in between worlds. You're suspended. You're in the cocoon right? We've, we often talk about the metamorphosis of a butterfly in rites of passage. It's that time where the caterpillar has melted into DNA soup. So you can't even really identify it as a caterpillar anymore because it's not, but it's also not yet a butterfly. So it's in that dream space of what am I becoming? That is, it's, it's magical. That's, that's, that's an appropriate word. Mm. And how long does that last? For us, it's four days and four nights, um, a total of about 108 hours where you're out there on your own. And during that time, you're, you're free from human contact, no food, essentially no distractions. That's really what, you know, for people who maybe this is going into the spiritual realm that they don't really speak that language. What I usually tell people is you're just creating the conditions for clarity by eliminating all the other volumes of noise that you usually have in your life. Um, I usually think of a soundboard for uh, a music producer or engineer turning all the extra effects down and just dialing up the master volume, which is the voice within. And then seeing what that voice has to say when I just listen to that voice and nothing else for four days and four nights. And how did you land on four days and four nights? Uh, traditional. Uh, it's, it's, it's what my teacher's taught to me. Um, there's, so I come from a lineage that goes back to a man named Stephen Foster, who um, was an anthropology graduate student back in, back at Berkeley, back in the seventies, who uh, was studying rites of passage work and recognized that there was an, there was a huge absence of it in our culture. 
um, especially for boys on their journey into manhood, but also for women. And so he went out and studied in all these different traditional ways and made a little bit of a synthesis, but primarily influenced by Native American rites of passages, um, primarily the vision quest, which the traditional word in Lakota for vision quest is hamblechia, to cry for a vision. Um, so there's in, it's inspired by some of these Native American traditional practices, but it really was something that was created separately and then has been around for over 50 years now from, uh, you know, from generation to generation. So four days and four nights, that's, that's something that there's a scientific explanation for it. There's something that happens chemically in the body when you're without food and sometimes without water for four days, your body goes through a detoxing process. So there's the science behind it. There's also the spiritual component about it in pretty much every faith tradition, belief system, there's some reference of four directions, right? You think of in Christianity, the sign of the cross. Um, in a lot of Native American traditions, there's the medicine wheel. Um, four directions is, is how things are done. So four days is, is very natural. Hmm. Interesting, man. Thanks for sharing that. Now, I guess like my, my curiosity is um, to ask you about uh, cultural appropriation. Because as you kind of mentioning, this guy from Berkeley who's studying, you know, um, First Nations practices from, you know, US and, and then kind of appropriating them for, you know, or amalgamating several other practices, bringing them together. And I've seen this with, you know, I've participated in, let's call them, yeah, rites of passage here in Australia as well. And, you know, obviously there's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander folks here in Australia who you know, are the First Nations folks here. And, and we were doing stuff with, you know, um, like Native American drums, you know, and I was like, this is probably not what this land needs, right? And, and, and it was just felt a bit strange to be doing that here on land in Australia. And so, yeah, and I've been in other, other ones where it's just been like, just been interesting. So I, I was in another one where we, we did a, um, Yes, an iteration of the haka as well. Again, uh, like a Maori practice, and it was just just felt strange and felt off to be participating in them. And so, and so I know I have personally felt a little bit. Uh, I don't know what the word is like. Weird, off, gross, a little bit cringy inside doing some practices that I'm like, this doesn't feel correct, doesn't feel right, doesn't feel like I should be doing this or we should be doing this right now. Um, and I know this is a conversation that's kind of starting to bubble up a little bit, at least here in Australia, which is quite interesting. And people talking about like the, the you know, there's a lot of smudging that happens in certain, um, you know, ceremonial practices. And one of the things that I know has popped up a little bit in these circles is like not smudging with sage because that's not appropriate to do on the land here in Australia. And so like, but it's something that has been done for a, lot, a long time because people just was like, yeah, let's fucking do it. That's what people are doing. It's what, that's what the thing is that you do. And there's been no like connection to the actual land that they're on. So um, anyway, I wanted to like ask you about cultural appropriation and, and you know, bringing practices together from various traditions and, and like if you've got a protocol for like mitigating that or acknowledging it or yeah, I'm just curious what your, what your take is on it. Yeah, man. Well, first I'll start by saying that it's a very... Uh, sensitive topic. And so I, I, I also approach it with a lot of humility. I, I know that I'm still learning a lot and I have elders who I, who I go to for my information and to learn. And I, I think that's really the most important thing is, is when we, when we encounter these types of conversations with curiosity and a willingness to learn and the humility to come, to come in a respectful way, then all of my experiences have been finding people who are, who are very willing to, to teach and to share because these, when it comes down to it, these traditional ways were created to help the people. Uh, granted, we've, we've done a really good job at separating ourselves as a people, but on a, on a genetic level, we're still all exactly the same, you know, minus a couple of melanin components to, to, to our makeup. So what I've come to understand in my ways, because I'm also very active in the Native American church. I've participated in a lot of traditional Native American ceremonies. I've helped to serve in those ways and, and support as an officer in many of those ceremonies. But I've never gone out and taught something I wasn't given the blessing from, from one of my elders and teachers. 
I think that's really important. I think a lot of people out there, they, they see something and they do it long enough to them that they feel certified to go and do something that they really don't know how to do. So I think getting permission from elders, um, even going all the way back to the, the lineage of vision fast that I come from, my understanding is that Steven, cause I never knew him personally. He passed away long before I knew these ways. Um, he, he got permission from these different tribes and peoples to, to, to create a way for his people. Cause, cause that's the problem. So many of us don't have a direct connection to our culture and where we come from. And I love that you spoke to the land. You know, there, there is a way in which the land likes to be in relationship with its people. We are children of this earth and the earth wants us to be in relationship with it in a certain way. That's how humans have survived for so long. And that's why traditional ways of living were around a lot longer than modern humans way of living. Cause there was a way of being in relationship with all things. I think it's essential for life that collectively we remember how to be in relationship with the earth in this way. And personally, I believe a part of that is to do that through a lot of these traditional technologies and practices. So my, my, my ethnic background, my father's family is from Japan. My mother's family is from Italy and parts of the Middle East. I don't technically scientifically have blood that is native to the people who have spent time in North America for, for a long period of time. But I know that what makes the most sense to me is a way of life that is connected to the earth and to the elements and to the things that I see. And I'm grateful that I've been welcomed into learning and studying these ways and, and being given permission to practice some of these ways and participate in ceremonies because for, for myself and my family, it's actually a core part of our foundation. Our, our lives are built around this way of life. And I think there's so many different ways that humans can access that. And it's important that we have proper guidance and direction uh, because we all come from the same origins and we come from peoples who had different practices and ways of being in relationship with the earth. But I think that it's, I think that these ways of being initiated to are a birthright and it's up to each individual person to find a way that feels, feels good in their body and, and that they can connect in a way that feels, feels good and resonant with them and to do it with proper guidance from somebody who understands and has humility and respect for those ways too. Mm, thanks for speaking to that man and you know something that i've shared on the podcast before and I'll, I'll say it again now is like i was looking for culture i was looking for lineage i was looking for you know some depth of understanding of my you know experience in the world and like where i've come from and as a lot of uh white folks from australia and and uh, america and europe did i went to india and I went to Southeast Asia and I looked in the quote-unquote East, right, for those teachings and those practices. And I taught yoga and I went and did some, you know, stuff with classical tantra and, you know, and, and, and it has been super valuable and, and, and immensely transformative for me to, like, go and do that. Uh, and again, recognizing that I was, I was able to do that. Uh, but part of it was still, like, I'm not Indian. I am not like my religion is not uh, Hinduism, right? Or, or Taoism for that matter. Like I, I, I know some Taoist practices, but like I'm not Taoist. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, you know, Tibetan or you know, I'm not from, you know, even though I, I spoke before I went to, to Thailand and ordained as a Buddhist monk, I'm not Buddhist to that uh, and I'm not Thai. So like it, it was just like this introspective, like questioning of what is my you know, how do I connect to my lineage and my culture and my family, my heritage? And <clears throat> I'm Scottish. That's my, my dad is, you know, we're, we're, we're part of the Fraser clan from the Fraser Highlands, just above Inverness. And we have a coat of arms, you know, and we have war cries as part of the Fraser clan. We, we have a, a very strong lineage and history and familial kind of background connected to Scotland and through that, that, you know, we're able to like trace the Fraser name back to France, particularly, um, you know, there's a debate about where the term Fraser comes from. Some people think it's phrase from the French meaning strawberry. Um, and when the Vikings came across from, you know, 
when they had landed in Normandy and then moved into Scotland to try and invade Scotland. Like there's, there's a really strong lineage there. And I was like, fuck, why am I not connecting into that? You know, like, why am I not connecting to the, the spiritual practices associated with you know, Scotland and United Kingdom? And, you know, so that led me to explore Druidry, particularly this year. Mm. So I've, I've done a, um, was, it's been a 13 month kind of mentorship, let's say, apprenticeship with the Order of Bards, Ovates and Druids, which is based out of the UK. And Philip Cargom is the, the head of that at the moment. And that's got its own lineage as well of teachings and practices and so and there's several other orders out there uh, but that's been a, a really fascinating thing to to tune back into you know is this like heritage and, and history of my ancestry i suppose and like the practices that come from druidry which is very specific to like where my family's from and my mum's you know my, my dad's the scottish side my mum's english and so that it's very much like britannia you know the motherland so to speak mm -hmm. um and so so that's been like a fascinating journey for me to kind of like go on personally and connect in with like you know, culture and something that's relevant to to like me specifically in terms of my own you know, family history so i wanted to just like share that as as an invitation to people maybe listening as well because i know the more i've spoken to people about that them especially in like the new age kind of spirituality communities there is such a like longing for a lot of like I said, white folks to like find that depth and that meaning and that connection. And a lot of us, you know, again, myself included, we go to India, we go to Thailand, we go to Bali, we go to, you know, places where our ancestors didn't live mm -hmm. and, you know, try and find connection there. And I think it's just an interesting phenomenon to be like, can you find connection to your own ancestry and your own lineage? So I, I don't know, don't know where I was going with that, but I thought to just bring it in. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great place to start. Um, you know, I've, I remember growing up, I was always more naturally drawn to the Japanese side of my family, the, just the culture and the practice, the way of being that my dad's side of the family had was much more resonant with me than my mom's side of the family. I even remember at 12 years old as, as best a 12 year old can articulate, I essentially told my mom, I don't, I don't love your side of the family. And really what I meant was I don't resonate with the way that everybody's doing things here. I feel much more connected to dad's side of the family. That's a whole nother rabbit hole talking about rabbit holes. But as far as finding something that I connect to, I think it's important for people to check in with themselves and to, to explore that. And that, you know, I believe that even depending on how far back you go and you try to track what humans have done, I think that when you really look at it, especially outside of the most recent several thousands of years of human history before civilization, there's so much evidence of humans passing along information that was useful so that we could continue to survive on this planet in a good way, in a good and responsible and respectful and resourceful way. The exchange of ideas, the exchange of belief systems, um, a lot of it was has, has been very detrimental to the human race, but there's also been a lot of really healthy examples of the exchange of ceremony and traditions and practices and medicines and plants and herbs. And I think that all, all of that being done with the right intention to start and with a level of degree of curiosity to always continue learning, I don't think that you can really go wrong. Um, with with humility, with respect, with curiosity, I think that walking into any tradition that way, and 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 being of service, also being generous in that way, there's a, there's a lot for us to heal and repair, but there's also so much to gain from being in in relationship with these traditional ways. Yeah, thanks for sharing, man. Now, I, I'm mindful of time, and I want to um, you know be. Uh, you know, prompt and, and, and on time because uh, I know we've, we've both got things to do um, but I wanted to like give you an opportunity for the last minute or so to, to offer any pieces of wisdom, piece of advice to some guys that might be listening who are like fuck I'm you know, maybe they're not able to go to a rising man uh, you know, because I recognize it's in person uh, So, mm -hmm. but, but guys that are like thinking fuck I'm missing this as part of my life, this rite of passage this um, this kind of element of, of transitioning, like it's something that I'm, I'm looking for. What would you say to a guy like that? 
Well, well, first of all, I would say we're we're coming out to Australia in 2024. So, hey, <laughs> so, so look right. us up. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, for those of you guys who want to check us out at Rising Man Movement, um, either send us a message or just just follow us because we're going to be making our way out there. We we intended to do so and had plans to do so in 2020, and then we all know what happened. <laughs> yep. So uh, we're finally making it out there, and um, you know. As far as just really bringing it back to what's the most important thing, I, I really would encourage men who are who are feeling an absence of purpose in their lives to make that their mission to go out and to explore and adventure and to, to not feel so much pressure to actually nail that down, but to learn to enjoy the journey of revealing what that purpose is. Because the way I was taught is that uh, until a man knows what his purpose is in this life, it's his mission to go out and find it. And that that doesn't have to be such a painful journey. It was a really painful journey for me. And I know it's painful for a lot of men who, who want so badly to be useful to the, in the world. I think in our heart of hearts, even, even the men that get written off by society, deep down somewhere underneath all of that shit, we just want to be of service to the people that we love and care about. Um, and for the men who have identified their purpose, who are fortunate enough to have received some clarity and some direction on what that is, to surround yourself with people who will amplify that that mission and that message, people who will challenge you to be great, people who will challenge you to raise the bar. Because if we're not raising the bar, if we're not raising the standard, then the standard is getting lowered all the time. Um, so I, I like to keep things simple. I think that's all I really have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. And I definitely resonate with the idea of having people in your life that are going to challenge you and, and support you to be better. That was a big big piece of the puzzle for me um anyway man I'll, I'll let you go but it's been so lovely to, to chat with you mate and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and and for just yeah spending time um shooting the shit it's been really lovely likewise man honored to be here thanks for having me thanks man